Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi there, and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. I'm James, and joining me on today's episode are Anne-Marie and Mike from the My Wall Street Analyst team. Today, we're talking about Roku's recent troubles and why it might actually be a better investment now, Google's own version of iOS 14.5, and we give quickfire earnings on Teladoc, IMAX, Virgin Galactic, and Home Depot. So, Mike and Marie, welcome to the Stock Club podcast. So, I promised that today we weren't going to talk about Peloton, but another story has come out about the company this week that I, I just can't start this podcast without mentioning. So, according to a Financial Times report, there's been a secret project going on within Peloton, codenamed Project Tin Man, where employees were covering up rust on bikes that were yet to be sold. It's, it's a pretty big story, and it's actually probably a pretty serious story, but the best part of this report for me was the really, really creative term that Peloton was using to for rust, which was cosmetic oxidation. I don't think I've ever heard it called that before. Anne-Marie, you were the first one who flagged this story to me, and the really burning question that I have is, how can indoor bikes get rust? I absolutely maybe like you sweat so much on a peloton class that you just rust the bike away but like maybe that's maybe that's part of the sales plan they were like if a person uses this bike enough it will fall apart and they will have to buy another maybe we're discovering a new element it's a a built-in self-destruct that they have to buy a new peloton eventually yeah it's like the american auto industry like back in the day where they're like we're gonna build these giant cars and they'll eventually fall apart and you just have to buy a new one yeah <laughs> it's just amazing like I, again rory is again missing for this podcast suspiciously enough but uh it's another one we'll have to throw at him when he comes on but it's just amazing like such a bad run of news for a company so yeah it's one we'll have to grill rory thank, guys when he comes thank on god it. your man's left i suppose isn't that it which man the ceo yeah but i suppose yeah it takes a lot of the heat off of you know <laughs> the new people can be just like well it wasn't us exactly blame the other yeah. guy Apparently, uh, the Financial Times broke another story on them today that apparently a bunch of the C-suite executives were borrowing on margin against the shares that they were owning so that they didn't have to liquidate the shares and pay taxes. And so it meant a bunch of them like they interviewed one guy and his net worth had gone from 36 million to 2 million overnight. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Marie, we're going to have to blame the other guy for that. Yeah, yeah, it's, we didn't do that. Don't worry. <laughs> well, that, that's exactly what we do every time we talk about Peloton in this podcast and Rory's not here. We're like, yeah, it's Rory's problem. <laughs> no. Let's move on then. Uh, and I suppose this this is another story that uh, might be an awkward one for us to touch on. So Anne-Marie, back at the start of January, you picked Roku as our first stock of the month pick for 2022. Since then, the company has been on a pretty much a downward spiral, losing almost half of its value in just a few short weeks. And there are a couple of reasons cited for this. Roku had a recent earnings report, which highlighted slowing revenue growth. There was recent reports that companies exploring plans to start making its own smart TVs. And of course, there's the old chest on the supply, supply chain issues that seems to be cropping up for every company. I'm going to go back to your get your thoughts on your original stock of one pitch for Roku. But first, I want to get your perspective on this recent run of bad news. Is there anything in those stories or anything maybe I've missed 
that's particularly worrying to you as a as a person pitching Roku as an investment? I don't think I saw anything kind of in the last quarter to two quarters that had me concerned. I, I But I will frame that with the idea that my pitch for Roku, and I think that was kind of reflected in the write-up, was it was very, very long-term. Like, I mm. was saying this is going to be a huge market shift and we're going to see it over the next 10 years. And, oh my God, isn't Roku in this in- fantastic position? But I will comment on the supply chain issues that the company has had, which basically impacted them on virtually every single metric that they showed this quarter. And that really impacts their ability basically to go into new homes and get people to create new accounts. Because obviously the most important thing for expansion of new accounts is the hardware. They have to be able to get into people's homes and either sell a dongle and attach themselves to an existing TV, or they need to sell a TV that has their smart TV iOS in it. And um, I think with supply chain issues, it really just slowed down the ability to keep those on shelves. And um, it also took a huge bite out of the company's margins when it came to um, the hardware segment. And that really was because Roku decided that they wanted to absorb the entirety of that cost. They didn't want to pass it on to consumers. I think that was actually probably smart. I think a huge appeal of the Roku um, smart sticks is that they are often cheaper than like the Amazon Fire Stick or the Google Chromecast. And that's um, really them trying to do that old chestnut of we're going to sell this hardware at a loss and we're going to make a way more money off this consumer down the line as we get to sell them ads. And so it was a somewhat concern. I mean, as as an investor in the company, you are stunned when you see, um, you know, a gross loss quadruple in a single quarter that that, yeah. that can that can be pretty sh- uh, shocking but um the one kind i of... thought you were going to say something else there it's not great yeah i mean like it, it sucks but the thing that you have to keep in mind is um i think the, the main thing that kind of shocked investors that day and the thing that pushed the stock down was that the company adjusted its q1 2022 guidance and i think everyone got a bit upset about that but full year 2022 guidance remains the same. So that tells me that the company is confident its performance later in the year is going to make up for any shortcomings that it has at the beginning of the year. And so it doesn't really change the long-term narrative about Roku. It's just a kind of temporary headwind. And what about this report of building smart TVs? So obviously at the moment, Roku builds hardware that's put into other companies' TVs. Do you, do you put any weight on these reports? Do you think it might be a good move or a bad move for Roku? I wonder, is it a direct response to the supply chain issues? Because Roku has like dozens of TV manufacturer partners, then they're kind of all over the world. I think in Brazil alone, they have six. Right. Um, and so I wonder, is it Roku just trying to say, we need to flood the market with as many TVs as possible that has our iOS? And maybe they're out of TV manufacturing partners partners to approach because I know Samsung and LG are creating their own smart TV iOS and maybe like Roku's like right maybe the solution is here that we need to start manufacturing a few of these to get TVs on the shelf to continue um, its new member growth that is kind of what I would see but I would be interested to hear them if it is a plan that they're going to do speak about that more and how they're going to hopefully improve their margins from what we saw this last quarter. Absolutely. You can see you can see why that would spook investors really you know we're having a lot of hardware issues so we're going to solve it with way more hardware yeah (laughs) but even more broadly like i think over the past while we've seen companies that have been doing something quite well i'm thinking of zillow for example Mm. they they were doing what they do quite well and then they moved into eye buying uh, and it worked really well for a while and then they had to pull back and you know it's it's always a little bit of a concern or or there's a lot of potential for things to go wrong when a company kind of pivots slightly from um from what it's what you're used to it doing. Let's go back to the first stock of the month report then in January or, or the, the original stock of the month report in January. And before we get into the specifics of, of, of what's gone on with Roku, I thought it was really interesting that 
I, I think at the start of that, you had mentioned that Roku stock had fallen about 45% in the months preceding um, that January pick, which is a pretty significant sell-off in itself. Considering then how much the stock continued to fall broadly as investors, does this show how difficult it is to pick or to call a bottom on a stock? Um, yeah, like it was, it was very difficult when I saw it in January. And when I made the pick, the price to sales ratio was at 10 and we hadn't seen a price to sales ratio that low in like over a year. And I was sitting around going, but the company is completely different now. It's completely, it's positioned in a totally different way and has so much more opportunity and potential with it. And when I say that, what we're going to talk about in the same time frame that we've seen this price to sales ratio, basically yo-yo and come back to, and come back down, Roku saw its platform revenue jump by 45% year over year and saw its average revenue per user jump by 43%. And its advertiser business is only really beginning to grow. So I would expect both of those metrics to climb even further. Like, And I would say that confidently, even if like they never attracted a new user. Naturally, I think once people get a Roku TV or get a Roku streaming device, particularly young people, just continue to use the device all the time. It basically will phase out all of their TV watching. And that means that there's a tremendous amount of potential to just generate a bunch of money from a single user over the lifetime of the device. Like we're talking five, 10 years. How often do you buy a TV? It's difficult to foresee how the market is going to react to news. It's like never great when you get a quarter where net loss has quadrupled, as I previously said. And it's obviously a real shame to pick a stock and then it drops by 50%. But um, I like I still feel confident in the initial pitch. Yeah, we're only going to like make fun of you on every podcast episode going yeah. forward. No, but like it, it is it's, it's really interesting. Like, you know, the amount of times I've heard people over over the course of my time working here saying, oh, you know, X stock is at a bottom. It can't go any lower. And I was like, well, wait till you see. <laughs> but yeah, so like back to that original thesis, I thought another interesting perspective that you mentioned in it was you know, this this switch in advertising. So now that's where Roku's really high margin revenue comes in. How do you see that play out, especially with, I suppose, the next story we're going to talk about, which are changes coming over at Google? Yeah, I think something that I kind of loved to see was uh, right before we got this kind of meh earnings report, um, Roku released a bunch of data about Super Bowl viewership. And I thought that was worth talking about. So Roku Super Bowl streaming reached jumped by 31.7% compared to last year and 12.9% of Roku households who watched the Super Bowl last year on traditional TV this year opted to stream it. And really live sports are like the last gasping breath of live tv and its ability to sell ads like for like decades everyone is always like the super bowl ads are the most famous part of the super bowl maybe more than the football and um if people are going to stream sports that places an awful lot of power in the hands of streamers and of roku who i will remind you owns 10 percent of all the ad space within ad supported streaming channels when they are accessed via a roku device and i think Part of the issue with Roku is it's a little bit misunderstood because people are used to framing streaming and the conversation around streaming as being the streaming wars. You know, you're arguing about Netflix or Disney or HBO or who's going to win this? Who is the best content? You can ignore all of that when it comes to Roku. The only question you need to ask yourself is, do I think streaming is going to become more popular? And if the answer is yes, you can see the potential of Roku. More and more streaming is going to be ad supported in the future because I'm sure we can all agree that it's very unlikely that people are going to pay for six or seven or eight different types of streaming services because it's probably going to end up more expensive than your cable bill. And uh, that means that more and more ad spend is going to trickle into this ecosystem in a single year. In this year, it's expected to jump up by more than $10 billion. That is more than 70% growth. That is huge. That is so much. That's crazy. And Roku has 60 million households. That's half of TV households in the United States. It is the most popular smart TV iOS. So if I'm a company who suddenly can't afford to buy ad space on TV because the only time that's worth buying is during the Super Bowl. And if I'm a company that has been shut out of 
buying ad space in social media because targeted advertising has gone away. I'm going to say, how do I advertise on streaming? And Roku has really built the best ecosystem for that in terms of being able to appeal to advertisers and help them target a market and collect data about their consumers. And I think it's tremendous. Like I, I like I wouldn't be surprised if, if in 10 and 20 years we're all standing around going, oh, yeah, Roku is basically the trade desk of streaming advertising because that is how well positioned they are for this next move in the market. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think they, they recently bought Nielsen as well, which really helps that those marketing or those advertising efforts, especially the data marketers can get back. Yeah, and they also have a huge partnership with Shopify, which is actually something I didn't know about when I wrote the original pitch and then did a bunch of research on when I kind of wrote this check-in that was published yesterday or Wednesday. And basically, they built a whole ecosystem that lives within the Shopify dashboard. So if you're a small and medium-sized business, you're probably not used to producing content for like going on TV. You know, if you're used to making a cool couple Instagram ads, you probably are not used to shooting an entire commercial. But Roku basically helps you set up everything you want. They help you target your audience. They ask you, you know, what your budget is um, set up duration basically everything you know like uh, how you want users to move from your ad into your ecosystem and they've seen really successful results with that type of thing and so i think roku is really well positioned to basically capture anyone who would be vaguely interested in ads whether that be you know a small business in a, in a local area that only wants to target people within their individual state or like a massive well-known brand like coca-cola or ford yeah absolutely really really interesting uh, and don't forget uh, if you want to read either the original stock of the month report or Anne-Marie's update to that, which was published on Wednesday. You can check that in my Wall Street right now. Let's move on then. And, and we're talking about advertising. So let's go to the probably the biggest conversation that's happened in advertising over recent much, which is iOS 14. And if that was tough for the advertising industry, it looks like things are going to get a whole lot worse. So last week, Google announced that it would, it would be launching its own new privacy updates to the Android operating system. And basically a lot of these updates will focus on the ability of apps to track users specifically the company said that it wants to work on privacy focused replacements for the alphanumeric identifiers that are used for by individuals uh, sorry or that are used within individual smartphone apps and allow companies to track and share information about users across different apps google said that these changes won't come into effect for another two years in order to allow companies and advertisers to prepare but they've also yet given no indication as to what this system will actually look like Mike, you've spoken a lot about the effects that Apple had on the kind of wider advertising industry with iOS 14.5. Are we going to see basically the same thing happen to Android? Yeah, it's interesting because Google, It's because if Google did it first, Google would have a lot more to gain as the advertising yeah. giant to hoover up a lot more market share. But they've gone about it very differently than Apple while also maybe having the same effect in the end. Um, yeah. So yeah, Google is limiting tracking of Android users across different apps, but it kind of did it the right way, if that makes sense. The execution of it from Google was a much more involved process. It involved, it actually, Facebook gave it props for the way it went about it. It didn't drop the bomb the way that Apple did with iOS 14, which seems a bit more than just protecting users' privacies and maybe something to do with Apple's own uh, advertising network and maybe taking yeah. control away from Facebook. Uh, so the big thing is that they're giving them two years of support uh, to continue on the way they're doing and figure out a new way eventually. In the blog post, actually, Google even took a dig at Apple. They stated that the the blunt way, the blunt nature in which Apple went about things can be ineffective and lead to worse outcomes for user privacy and developer businesses. So yeah, and like we know ourselves in my Wall Street, like the effect iOS had. So. Not yeah. to ever side with Facebook, but it has affected small businesses too, you know? 
Yeah, it was it was definitely a, a bit of a, a atomic bomb dropped on small businesses uh, with the amount of notice given. But do we think like it's surely just going to end up the same? It's going to we're going to arrive at a landscape in two years where you know this kind of targeted advertising that we we become all become accustomed to through our apps and and even on on websites that's just going to become a thing of a, of the past. Is that the way we're going? Yeah, hundred percent. We're going back to billboards and newspapers. And no, cookies look, popping think, up on every single website yeah, you go to. Yeah. The old the old school uh, websites where the pop-ups come from every angle. Yeah. I'm I'm so <laughs> glad hum- humanity's progressing in a straight line. <laughs> um, I think no, I think sorry, we are go gonna get we are gonna get the same ads, but just instead of beer trimmers and communist literature, James, you're gonna get targeted now with something completely different. <laughs> <laughs> at least for the time being. But I think the days of thinking like, remember when everyone thought Facebook was reading their minds at one point, yeah. you think of something and an ad would pop up in the same week. Like that's gone for now, at least. And I don't know if it will come back. I don't know if companies will be able to utilize the same level of information that they've had on customers with these new privacy laws, which isn't a bad thing. I don't think either. So I think the landscape overall will change. I think Amory talk there about streaming that's going to be a huge factor coming forward and i think it will look differently and from an advertiser's perspective the reliance on social media will wane but i think digital ads itself is only growing just maybe a bit more fragmented yeah well like then let's talk more broadly like what what is the future so you mentioned facebook slash meta there you know, that is a company that has been completely built on advertising and this type of advertising. We know they're kind of moving towards the metaverse, whatever that eventually might end up being. But, you know, what other companies are going to be really impacted by by these changes? Well, you've seen it play out. Like we talked about Twitter there two weeks ago and <laughs> because their ad targeting wasn't very good, they weren't that affected. And Snapchat does things a bit differently as well. So I think it's hard to look past Facebook in terms of like, the person getting affected the most like mm. they said it in their earnings report it's gonna it's gonna be 10 billion in sales next year like they lost 200 billion market cap in a day poor mark zuckerberg fell out of the top 10 richest people in the world it's it's really come down to facebook and then smaller advertisers have definitely been affected too yeah so, yeah. And what about exchanges like the Trade Desk? They'll surely be massively affected by this as well. Yeah, well, the trade the trade desk is programmatic, so they would have avoided the social media and more so okay. gone through. So I, I don't think I don't think the trade desk itself will be that affected. They've also initiated a big push towards streaming too. Hmm. I suppose the the hope is though that we're gonna to get to kind of a, a higher quality of internet experience again, <laughs> discounting the cookies and pop-ups you, you get when you go to every site now. But surely, you know, the the kind of the the zeitgeist seems to be moving towards that everyone, you know, values privacy. Now we all understand what the the sacrifice, the actual costs of these free social media sites were now looking back. What companies we mentioned Roku, is there any other companies then that we think will really benefit from this move? Yeah, it's funny. I had this basically exact conversation with Barat and Rob from the marketing team uh, yeah. about two or three months ago. And yeah, as you were saying, you mentioned the trade desk. I was hoping to uncover the next one and this new great company that's going to take over everything. But it was actually a very boring conversation where they said it's going to be <laughs> Google, it's going to be Google, TikTok, and maybe Apple's new uh, burgeoning ad network as well. 
So, yeah. So yeah, obviously Google aren't are, are unleashing these changes, but it's going to benefit Google eventually. Yeah. Well, the thing is, like, if any, if Facebook becomes weaker, then Google becomes stronger. They, for a long time, had a bit of a duopoly in digital ads. Um. So I think where Facebook's platform becomes worse for advertisers, they're going to have to look elsewhere. Mm. Google is the obvious one. TikTok is becoming big player as well. And then for developers, Apple is going to seemingly put a lot of effort behind its uh, ad network too. So they might be protecting our privacy or just really grouping our privacy into smaller and smaller number of companies. Uh, we'll have to wait and see how that one pans out. So let's move on then. And so for the last few weeks, a lot of earnings have been going on and we've done a quick fire round on some of the companies that have reported in the week just gone. We have a few more on a list here. So I'm going to ask you guys for your quick TLDRs again this week. Mike, let's go over to my favorite company, Teladoc, first. I've got a question in during the week uh, for the podcast from Carol. Thanks for the question, Carol. And he asked if Teladoc was becoming the new Peloton in terms of its share price free falling. I don't know, Mike, how was the recent quarter? What are things looking like over at Teladoc? Yeah, I don't think that's a fair comparison for Teladoc. Uh, there, there's there's been no rust on Teladoc at all. There's no <laughs> rust on Teladoc. There's been similarities in the price action and the kind of pandemic pull forward and people classify them as just a COVID stock. But Teladoc hasn't really shown any of the managerial missteps missteps of uh, peloton so i wouldn't put them in the same bracket for now anyways in terms of earnings it was pretty much par for the course here with teladoc uh it looks like we're finally getting out of the other side of all the expenses and stock-based compensation associated with the lavongo deal the company only posted a net loss of 11 million for this quarter compared to nearly 400 million last year uh revenue growth is solid guidance is pretty much the same it does see a dip in q1 but that's just to the delay of onboarding a few large clients. Uh, it's mental health solution. Better health is firing all cylinders. And there's a few big product launches between full patient care and chronic care services for 2022. That should be interesting. There's interest comment as well from the CFO, Malam Murthy, uh, Murthy, who basically said that guidance is very transparent for 2022 and uh, based around already signed contracts. So the company seem, doesn't seem dependent on signing any new business. And then from an investor perspective, we could look at this as, well, if they do bring in any big new clients for the year, that's going to be a positive bump in terms of revenue. So, so yeah, overall, pretty pretty solid quarter from Teladoc. Okay, good. Uh, Anne-Marie, let's come over to you. So you've spoken at Lent before about the cinema industry. IMAX reported a couple of days ago. How are things looking there? Pretty much lined up with kind of what we expected to happen with the cinema uh, industry. Uh, when we spoke about Movie Pass last week, one of the things I said that um, maybe a shortcoming of, of trying to do an unlimited Movie Pass like subscription service or going to the movies was that a lot of people these days really only justify going to the movies to see like a big tentpole production. Like they want the spectacle, they want it to be a Marvel mm. film, they want big scale. And that obviously favors IMAX a lot because all they do is big scale. And that was really re reported this quarter. Revenue soared 94% year year which we have to keep in mind we're coming off the back of uh, 2020 so you know no one was going to the movies in 2020 <laughs> they saw revenue of 108 million dollars and earnings of 17 cents a share compared with a year ago where it was a loss of 36 cents per share they basically blew away analysts estimates um, for both of these figures which we saw the stock pop a little bit it went up about seven percent in the day the thing that caught my attention the most though was that imax's global market share hit a record 3%, which means that like of all of the tickets sold, 3% of them were IMAX tickets. And that is a good sign for them in terms of being able to capture more and more and more market share as 
uh, the types of movies we're producing kind of lean more and more in their favor. And actually for this quarter, which was their fourth quarter, 2021, they controlled 3.5% of the global market and 5.6% of the domestic market in the United wow. States. And they really have to give credit to the movies that came out in that quarter, things like Spider-Man, um, which uh, was actually shot using IMAX film and was developed using IMAX sound. So it was really meant to be viewed um, in that kind of big arena type setting. And people, particularly big Marvel fans, they will pay top dollar to go and see it in IMAX. And actually in the three weeks that were captured in Q4 of 2021, IMAX captured 5.7% of Spider-Man's box office for those three weeks, which is apparently more than they captured of all of Avengers Endgame back in the day. So that's telling me more and more people are realizing, hey, I want to go see this in IMAX and they're willing to pay for it. So uh, things might be looking up for IMAX. We might yeah. be seeing this might be the the potential movie theater stock that actually could have some growth in it rather than. Yeah. Um, Amory, I will remind you of AMC. Uh, oh yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> it's an it's an interesting point though. Like the the overall cinema or theater pie might be getting smaller, but IMAX is taking up more of it. it it's going to the cinema is really just becoming one of those, I suppose, premium experiences that people don't do quite as often. But when they do, they they really want to splash out in it. Thanks for that. Uh, let's move on then. So one of the first companies that was ever added to the Horizon service by Emmet was Virgin Galactic. Mike, an earnings report from a company that doesn't actually really make any money yet is a bit of a novelty. Any useful insights from Virgin Galactic's call? Yeah, the oxymoron that comes around every three months, an earnings report with no <laughs> earnings. Yeah, it, like this company is pre-revenue. It uses this as more of a general business update and everything is on track and going to plan. A schedule updates for the fleet to be completed in Q3. Um, its goal is to get paying customers into space by Q4. So nothing major, it's well capitalized to continue on this, but the news outside of the company, outside of the earnings report here is more so Schmath just announced he's leaving his role as chairman and he's leaving the board of directors of the company and the company just put up a new batch of tickets for sale as well. So depending on your opinions of Schmath, that could be two pieces of good news there. So... Uh, <laughs> I won't ask you. I won't ask you for your opinion. Finally, let's move on to another one of my favorite companies. It was a good week for James Dunn. Home Depot reported at the start of the week. Uh, Anne Marie, surely this is one of those companies that's avoiding the wider tech sell off we're seeing at the moment. Well, see, Home Depot again, just like Roku, it's guidance. That was the issue. Like it had such a nice little solid quarter, and then they just went a little conservative with the guidance, and the entire market was like, absolutely not. Home Depot will never sell another two by four. So net sales for the quarter surged 10.7%. And uh, same store sales, which is really kind of their key metric, jumped by 8.1%. That's very nice, consistent, healthy growth, particularly coming off the back of 2020, where we saw a lot of people buying things at Home Depot. A lot of people were stuck at home. So they were like, now is the time. I'm going to redo the grout. Now is the time. I'm going to retire the bathroom. Who knows if those projects got done, but at least they bought the tile in Home Depot. The company also announced a 15% increase in its quarterly dividend. So it's now $1.90 per share. That's great news for you, James. Do you own Home Depot? Yeah. Um, yeah, there you go. Um, and yeah, even on a two-year basis, sales were up 30%. It's like it was not like I would not be worried if I owned Home Depot. Everything looks fine. They are just being a little bit conservative because we don't really know what's going to happen in the next year. I guess that that's fair enough. But they still seem to have some pretty nice winds blowing in their favor. It's expected that home building is going to continue increasing in the United States in the coming year. So um, they could end up beating these conservative uh, guidance for next year. But there you go. Okay. It seems to be the theme of this earnings season was decent numbers and conservative guidance and the stock plummeting yeah I, I wouldn't really blame any company for not knowing what's going to happen in the next few weeks i don't think yeah. any sector 
your part of the world knows uh, exactly what's going to happen. But remember, our analysts post daily updates in the My Wall Street app on the companies that have reported earnings, so you can keep up to date on all of the latest news there. We also have some other great analyst insights live in the app right now, including a piece from Anne-Marie. That's the full write-up on why Roku might even be a better opportunity now than when we published it a stock of the month. And another great piece from Mike on the recent troubles faced by Facebook. Too, just just want to make actually. a proviso there, James. The recent troubles caused by Facebook. Okay, sorry, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so they were the instigator, not the sufferer, sorry. Absolutely, um, yeah. But I do want to I do want to mention as well that we have a new audio feature in the My Wall Street app too, which means that you can actually listen to these insights if you don't have time to read them. So that's a handy feature. And if you want to check it out, along with a full shortlist of handpicked stocks of which one was added to this week and tons more great investing analysis, all you need to do is go to mywallstreet.com and create a free account. Mailbag. So a few weeks ago, we got a question asking us for a good book recommendation for an intermediate investor for this week's mailbag. <laughs> Mike, you're going to give another book recommendation, The Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel. Hit us with it. Yeah. Every time I read something by Morgan Housel, I get a little bit frustrated because he's just so good and he makes you feel like a really bad writer. <laughs> but <laughs> he, he has a great way of like distilling these very elaborate and complex concepts into something that's just really easy to digest and understand which is i suppose the art of a good writer really yeah <laughs> um, so if you've read his blog on the collaborative fund you'll be fairly used to how he writes and the book is very similar in that it's almost each chapter is like a short story so it's great for dipping in and out of as well kind of like a coffee table book and each one is just kind of a separate instance of how to be good with money really mm. um if you could drill the book down to a few lines of advice i think it would look something like be humble and frugal enough to set money aside every month, then let it compound without getting your emotions in the way. I know this is easier said than done, but I think there's a great calmness to his writing that if you read this book, you will become a better investor. Yeah, absolutely. I think the the psychology part of the title is is very apt, um, especially now when emotions are running rife and uh, every week it seems like the world is ending in a new and different way. Uh, that calmness and that ability to just kind of disconnect and and see kind of investing as a psychological <laughs> endeavor or, or a, a, an, an exercise in temperament more than anything um, really, really helps. It's a good book. It's one of those books I often go back to and just read a chapter from every so often <laughs> based on, on what has been happening recently. So Morgan was actually a guest on the podcast back in October 2020, so where he spoke about the psychology of money. So that was just when he released it. So if you want to go back and listen to Morgan speaking, you can check that episode out now. It's called The World According to Morgan Housel. So that's another one. And we might call you next time for your book recommendation. Cool. Let's move on to Elevator Pitch. So we added a new company to my Wall Street shortlist this week, as I mentioned, and it was probably one of the most boring companies we've ever added. Not a bad thing, though. As Peter Lynch once said, the perfect stock would be attached to the perfect company, and the perfect company has to be engaged in a perfectly simple business, and the perfectly simple business ought to have a perfectly boring name. The more boring it is, the better. That was a lot of perfectly. So in honor of boring companies, in honor of adding our latest boring companies to my Wall Street shortlist, I've asked both of you to pitch me your favorite boring companies today. And if either of you mentioned Elon Musk's boring company, I'm ending this <laughs> podcast right now. <laughs> uh, Anne-Marie, we'll come to you first. What's your favorite boring company? Well, I would like my favorite company and boring company is Costco, but Rory has been talking about Costco a lot recently. And so I'm not going to talk about Costco. This today. podcast has become like a Costco fan club. 
Yeah, I think that's fair enough. It's a great company. Anyway, my stock that I decided <laughs> yeah. to go with, though, was actually one that Rory actually really likes, which is Prologis, which is the largest industrial real estate company in the world with over 4,500 buildings in 19 countries. And it primarily rents warehousing space to companies like Amazon, FedEx, UPS, and Walmart. This is thanks to the company's focus on warehousing near really densely populated areas like New York, Chicago, and San Francisco. Every year, approximately $2.2 trillion worth of goods flow through a Prologis site, representing 2.5 of the global GDP. That is crazy. And I think Prologis is a great play if you just believe in the general increase of e-commerce and you don't really want to try and pick out a single player. They're really strong and stable and they actually rank really well in ESG ratings as well. So there you go. Okay, good. Very interesting. We actually just released a new uh, video on my Wall Street YouTube about ESG. So that's, that's a nice bit of synergy there. Thanks for that, Anna Marie. Mm-hmm. Mike, what about you? What's your favorite boring company? Well, I pitched the elevator company Otis two weeks ago as well. So that's right up there for me, but I'm not going to repeat myself. So another uh, boring Elevators company. are pretty exciting when you think about them. <laughs> There's a lot of ups <laughs> and downs with them. <laughs> so, but I'm not going to pitch the same stock. So instead I've chosen American Tower, which is actually a REIT, which is short for a real estate investment trust. So to give a way too short brief on REITs. Uh, they work different than normal stocks in that they must receive 75% of income from real estate operations. And what's great for investors is that at return at least 90% of their taxable income to shareholders in the form of dividends. So American Tower owns 185,000 towers across the globe, which it rents out space for, for wireless communication equipment. It's a part, vital part of the technological infrastructure that keeps the world turning. And it's actually identified a new uh, growth driver for the years ahead in the form of edge computing, which is kind of like 5G on steroids. Um, so <laughs> I, I, I know I'm going to get loads of people complaining about that, but uh, it is a really interesting company and it has just the, the real estate in terms of towers everywhere across the world. And I don't think it's going to go anywhere anytime soon. Yeah, absolutely. A, a vital service. Uh, that was a good one. Thanks, Mike. So that is it for today's show. Remember, if you have any questions you'd like us to answer or elevator pitches you'd like us to tackle, make sure to get in touch. You can find us on Twitter. That's at MyWallStreetHQ. On TikTok, that's at MyWallStreet. Or simply just email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. That's P-O-D at MyWallStreet.com. If you're enjoying the show, make sure to tell your friends about us and make sure to review us or leave a rating for us on whatever platform you listen to us on. Thanks for joining us today and we'll talk to you next week. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.